Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Anao podcast. As always, we'd welcome you to follow us on social media, on Twitter and on Facebook at Anao Podcast. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and on anchor.fm forward slash Anao. This week we're focusing on the Amazon rainforest and I'm really excited to be joined by award-winning journalist Carla Mendez Uh, who's based in Rio de Janeiro, is a contributor editor for Manga Bay. She's been working as a correspondent for international outlets since 2015, and in the last two years specialized in covering environmental, land and property rights issues. I'm also joined by Rebecca Loudon, a UK environmental social activist. What has been happening in the Amazon rainforest up until COVID-19 hit this year? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a pleasure to be here talking about this important topic that doesn't matter just to Brazil, but for the entire world, given the Amazon rainforest key role for the climate change and biodiversity and so on. So, well, the situation in the Amazon rainforest actually was not good even before the COVID-19. And if you take a look at deforestation figures for 2019, uh, the deforestation was the worst in the last 10 years, according to INPE, which is the government uh, national uh, space research agency. So the situation was bad uh, even before Bolsonaro, but it got worse after he took took office, because he's clearly uh, trying to open up the Amazon rainforest to development. I mean, agriculture, mining, uh, and and a lot of bills are, he proposed a lot of bills in the, during his government, to easy enforcement, as well as to uh, not punish, Illegal loggers, miners, and a lot of stuff. And then, so COVID-19 came. And the situation got even worse. Because we see that there isn't a political willingness to try to stop the frustration. And then the COVID-19 imposed isolation measures. After that, Reinforcement was reduced. It wasn't good before, but became worse. And what happened? Illegal loggers, miners, they keep doing their work. And we could see land invasions uh, increasing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, really were in situations in many ways. And with that, many indigenous communities being in fact by COVID-19. So, right. and this year, for example, until April, uh, the first station is 40% higher than the same period of 2019, which was the worst in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was reading online about how just how 2019, there was a report, I think on, on one of your platforms that was stating that uh, the Map Biomass Alert Project did an annual deforestation report and it showed that 
of all deforestation in Brazil last year was illegal. Yeah. And that, that just kind of blew my mind. And then it followed it up with the fact that it was 4,705 square miles of native vegetation that it was lost. I mean, th- those, those numbers are petrifying. Yeah. Yeah, they are. No, I know the, they do a fantastic work, Mac Biomas, and uh, they, because they, they cross-check data from different platforms, and they also did this analysis on whether or not the places where deforestation happened, if there was legal deforestation, because there is legal deforestation if it was authorized, if it is not a protected area, if it was not native vegetation, it's not indigenous reserve. But what we see is that many of these areas overlap protected areas. It's really worrying. When the president says that it's not legal encroaching indigenous lands, that he wants to promote development there, so these guys, these bad guys, they feel emboldened by that speech. So they just start doing this. And at the same time, the government kind of has dismantled the enforcement system. It was happened before COVID-19 and it keeps happening. By the way, federal prosecutors filed a suit against the environmental minister, he came Salis yesterday. Oh, yesterday, wow. Yeah, yeah, when I was, so, and uh, they are arguing uh, administrative improbity, not sure if that's the right word, or administrative misconduct by the environmental ministry. So the prosecutors argue that he intentionally dismantled the Brazilian enforcement system to allow environmental crimes. So they are trying to uh, make him quit the job, you know, make him lose his position and also to suspend his political rights and make him pay fines. So let's see how this process goes. It's a bit unpredictable, but the thing is that the situation is getting worse for them because they were uh, also suits claim, uh, filed before international courts against Bolsonaro government for genocide, for ecocide. So, so, but, so Ricardo Sales, he's the environmental minister. This is a guy who was caught on video uh, at, toward the end of May. I think he said something... Um, to, to run, he wanted the COVID-19 to be a distraction for the government. And I quote, I think he said, to run the cattle herd. Yeah. Uh, to change all the rules and to simplify the standards. So basically empowering, as you said, those illegal loggers and miners to encroach into the land. Is it, is it this video that started this process, this legal process? Because surely with that evidence, he, he shouldn't really have yeah. a hope in hell, right? This video really is uh, it's really strong because it's him on video saying that. And before that, there were many claims and steps. So uh, this video really, I think it's a milestone to try to do something concrete into changes because if you have an environmental 
ministry who is against the environment, how to protect it. Another thing, because adding to all the situation, the government is also trying to push infrastructure projects that threaten many protect areas and indigenous reserves, because we have many outsiders passing there, you know, we can, it can bring violence. So infrastructure projects like roads, dams, or agri big agricultural projects. And, and this pandemic, it's becomes really even worse. Mm. So, and we can see cases even of and isolated tribes being affected, like the Yanomami in in uh, Horaima. Uh, there are many cases there. So you are, they are doing, they're really claiming for help because beyond the situation, what happens is that many communities lack, you know, supplies to survive. I mean, I wonder many what kind of, medical care is available because i know i know in some of these uh tribes there are like half half of the population there have tested positive for coronavirus so what what resources are available to them not not many resources actually because there is a recent report that showed the distance between indigenous villages and uh the hospital beds, for example, and you can see that, you know, they're not close to them. And uh, that's why preserving the area is so important because access to many areas is not easy. So if people get sick, sometimes they have to take a two-day trip in a boat to get access wow. there. So usually the health workers go until them to take care of them. I've been to many indigenous villages and I could see that there are, you know, they go in four to four trucks or in some areas boats to take care of these people, but there isn't a hospital there. So they are much more vulnerable than us. There is a great quote by Bruno Rocca. Um, Every time an elder dies, a library is burnt. And that quote kind of really resonated with me. Yeah, no, this is a really strong quote and represents a bit of the indigenous culture because all the knowledge within the villages, the community, they are oral. It's much different from us writing books. Of course, that there are many indigenous writers, you know, but it's something that has happened. But usually, you know, the elder people, they are very respect. They are the, who, the ones who own this knowledge and pass this knowledge to the other indigenous in the community. And they have uh, a knowledge that we don't have, for example, how to build a canoe, the power, medicinal power of many plants. Mm -hmm. And uh, as many of these elder people are dying, usually a library is dying because this knowledge was not passed to other people because they are dying before they were supposed to. We tend to just consider knowledge, the things from our culture, having a master's, PhD, a book, but 
the indigenous people have a knowledge, a valuable knowledge that we don't know. Seriously, the Amazon rainforest has a power of all these plants, their properties. They know, they survive on the land. They know a lot about the climate, the seasons, the right uh, time to, to have the crops. And uh, it's a valuable knowledge. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's really worrying and that's why we need to do an outcry to report what's happening and try to halt the situation somehow. And I don't, I don't know how, what happened in regard, regards to the story that I heard that evangelicals from North America, from the US, were looking to come down and enter the rainforest and make contact with, with the indigenous people. Did that actually happen? Because I know there's like a legal case against it. Yeah, this is another issue that we face because they are trying to, how can I say? Because many people consider indigenous people like primitive people and they need to be educated. They need to be, you know, to follow other religion. And this... <laughs> We link this with the colonization period of Brazil, but by that time it was mostly Catholicism when the Portuguese came here and started to, to force the indigenous people to adopt their religion. And uh, now we see this wave of uh, uh, evangelicals. It's not just now. I visited many indigenous communities and I was really impressed by the number of evangelical churches. I visited a huge reserve in Mato Grosso do Sul, and it was really stunning how this, this is a village very close to a town, and, uh, and this is incredible how this movement keeps going. We are in 2020, and this, this keeps happening. And again, the, this government is supported by evangelicals, so... This is connected also with a, a movement to try to, I mean, to, to make indigenous people to adopt, to, to be evangelical, because many ministers are evangelicals. Actually, uh, a FUNAI official was evangelical. It was really controversial because many reports uncovered that there was a kind of a plan, you know, to start this movement of sending evangelicals on the ground to convert mm. indigenous people. And there are these groups that are coming. And then so Prosecutors Act to ban these people to, to be there, especially now during COVID-19, because they were there. There's nothing like organized religion preying on the vulnerabilities of uh, smaller populations. Um, unfortunately, that that's a common tale. Um, I know. Hopefully, hopefully, something happens with it in the courts. But again, how much is that going to be enforced if there's minimal efforts to uh, police the area? Um, now, Rebecca, I know that you have uh, kind of like the, the the social activist angle. Is there any questions that you have that you want to ask, Carla? Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all. I'm interested about the um, immunity in the rainforest because for us in the UK, I, I, the understanding is that if you're from a 
um, a specific socioeconomic group, you're going to be, your immunity is going to take um, a battering much worse by this. And it's the people who are most vulnerable who are suffering. And that's to directly linked to healthcare. And I was perhaps naively assuming that um, the Awa in the rainforest would have a kind of higher level of health uh, or a more stable, um, natural level of health kind of living with inside the forest. Does that seem to be the case or does it not, um, does it not work that way? in terms of their immunity to the, to COVID-19. Yeah, the, the Awa, right? That's considered by the Survival International as the most vulnerable indigenous group in the world. They are healthy in their, I mean, in their place where they live, but they don't have immunity to be in touch with us because outsiders can transmit many illness to them. So they are much more vulnerable to many illness we have, and especially in COVID-19. So there is even a, many activists here in Brazil are calling COVID-19 as it can be the new genocide if the, the due measures are not adopted. Um, I was wondering, I was wondering about the the baddies <laughs> um, and what the the alternates are because uh, it's is it's one thing, isn't it, to go as a force and to say you need to stop, but ultimately, if it's their livelihood, even if it's it's um, morally um, tricky one, if it if it's that, if it's how they support their family, would I wondered what the if there were other mechanisms that they could transfer their skill set to or anything that had been structures that had been thought up where they could alternate systems of working, I guess. And I think that an education process, giving them opportunity to work with other things could be a, a, good, a good solution. The thing is that in many cases, people who are on the front line they are not the biggest bad guys. They sure. are big people behind them. So in many cases, when they catch a logger, that person receives the fine, but there is a, a scheme, big scheme behind this. It yeah. involves bribery, corruption. So, And this comes to another thing that's really important, that's to... Uh, do enforcement in the entire supply chain. Because given the, all the scenario I described to you, I do think that the biggest pressure over Brazil to change things will come from international markets because Brazil is an exporter. So, and I think that all, all parts of the supply chain have to be accountable. Oh, I didn't know this came for a legal area. You should know. Yeah. So there, of course, there are some mechanisms. Some of them work the, for a while, and then they were abandoned. So I think that you know, we have to have enforcement in Brazil, but the buyers also have to do. And actually, there were some positive moves from importers, saying that if Brazil. Uh, approved the law legalizing land grabbing, for example, they would stop importing products. And I know so, there's a large trade 
like the largest trade treaty ever negotiated between the European Union and Brazil that was ongoing as well. I don't I don't know if that has uh, been signed or completed during COVID-19, but again, that, that was an example of where the European Union could perhaps pressure the Brazilian government by saying, hey, we won't sign this treaty unless you put in these regulations. Well, this trade um, agreements, you know, they usually take very long to be signed. But there was a recent report uh, this week saying that, you know, this, this is really under threat, considering all policies that the government is adopting. Uh, so we, we don't know if it will be signed. And I think that if Brazil keeps doing the things it's doing, it, it won't succeed. And again, that's why uh, I think that the best way to have uh, um, an effective action to ban illegal activities from illegal areas is to have this oversight over the entire supply chain. And then, again, Brazil is huge, but then to Bambu can have involved the local community to help oversight. There are many places where indigenous people receive cell phones from NGOs that have specific projects to report, you know, deforestation mm -hmm. and these things, and then technology to have a kind of uh, trackers on the on cattle. And because in many places, for example, cattle, meat, the biggest exporters say, no, I just buy meat from uh, legal uh, farmers, but we know that there is a kind of a, a cattle wash system. They they buy <laughs> meat from illegal areas and then at the end move to their area. So, for example, you have a kind of a, a SIM card, something similar like this, a tracker that you could follow. Everything could help. And then, and the buyers just say, no, you have to prove you, you cannot have any fines applied by the Brazilian Environmental Agency and an educational process as well in communities and to give them opportunity to, to receive, to have their livelihood from other means. Mm. I know, for example, I visited a, a place in Amazonas uh, three years ago where the river dwellers, they producing cacao to uh, in, uh, uh, native, they were harvesting native Amazonian cacao and this cacao is exported to companies in Switzerland, in Germany. And uh, they told me that you know, they received the money for this, but it's all sustainable. So there are ways that's not, you cannot touch the forest there. You can live from the land, but you have to make it in a sustainable way. I guess it's like solution time for a lot of people. I think few people really are like, okay, <laughs> we're at a pendulum swing. Do you have a, like an action plan of things that would solve, that would, that would solve this problem? And if you don't, who would be the people that you'd want to have in a room? to brainstorm? I think that the solution uh, involves having one pillar in economy, as I described in the supply chains. 
And we can see also in Brazil an engagement, a higher engagement of people to help more vulnerable people and uh, not just indigenous people, but people living in favelas, people, you know, who are suffering because the poorest people are the ones who are suffering more by COVID-19. This is... Globally. Yeah. And in the case of uh, um, indigenous people, um, if you are interested in supporting or getting engaging with with them to try to help in them somehow. Uh, they are well organized. There is a national association in Brazil called APIP. Uh, the executive director coordinator is Sonia Guajajara, who is dispense presentations, right? I guess you know her. She's, and uh, they are very active, you know, and on social media, and they have Media India, which is a fantastic platform of content produced by indigenous people. They, they're really interesting because they are kind of sick of just being reported by us, you know, white people going there. And so they started producing content about them. And they, are, they launched many, for example, COVID-19 came in March. In April would be the biggest indigenous march in Brasilia. They could not do that due to COVID-19, but they did that online and they are doing discussions, courses, and you know, showing their culture. They are really, really active. Then some indigenous groups have their own organization. For example, there is one in Maranhão that I know personally, the guard, they call themselves the guardians of the forest. They are a group of indigenous people who used to fight against illegal loggers. I did a documentary. I saw many photographers selling their pictures and the money would be converted to help indigenous people in, in the Amazon. So we are seeing a, a beautiful movement of people thinking about others and equality, yeah. solidarity. It's, and it's, so those those two links, if you're kind enough to send them along, I'll post them in the episode description, um, along with all the previous links that you sent me for research purposes. I'll post all of them in the episode description as well, so listeners can go and read for themselves. I suppose I want I wanted to ask about deforestation. So NASA predicted that there's a hundred years left of the Amazon rainforest based on deforestation from the last two years. If you're now saying that that's gone up this year um, by 40 to 50% more, um, we're, we're potentially looking at losing the Amazon rainforest in the next 50 to 80 years. Is there any process around the world that they look at and think they could replicate it in order to preserve the rainforest? And if so, what can people do both in Brazil and around the world to engage and contribute to the prevention of deforestation? I think that um, to preserve the Amazon, we need to create a really movement engaging the society as a whole. Uh, as I said, the supply chain, the importers, but the buyers in the country as well. 
So we see that many products we buy come from illegal areas. So we should uh, ask more transparency for all products. Stop buying products from companies who are clearly linked to environmental crimes and deforestation. Because again, the country is too big. And I think that uh, it's something that we cannot, we cannot change. It's this big. We cannot have people everywhere. Technology can help. But I think we do need to change our thought as a society. And I suppose it's, it's that irony as well of, you know, we have a, a global pandemic, which is impacting an X amount of the population. But really, the Amazon rainforest is, is like the heartbeat of, of the world. And to lose that will obviously kill a lot more people than COVID-19 ever will. Um, and ultimately, what we need is, is our governments to respond to the global crisis, the environmental crisis as rapidly as they have done with this pandemic. Really, I think I just feel that this extreme lack of accountability anywhere in terms of like no one being prepared to stick their neck out and um, speak about something on a bigger scale. Our, our thinking at the moment as a globe is so short term, it's quite amazing. <laughs> um, considering so many people have children and continue having them. We will now, we will make a collective decision to, to, to save this rainforest. We have to. I'm a teacher and one of my students was like, Rebecca, we've got five years. We've got five, five years. Let's, like, let's get cracking. And I think that we're very lucky to have the younger generations. They has, there's some serious wisdom there. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And of course, that to change the thing of requiring sustainable products, of all products we buy, Right now, they are more expensive. So we need government incentives yeah. to lower the costs, you know? So, for example, organic food. The minimum wage in Brazil is not able to buy organic food because it's very expensive. We need to do our change, but without the government engagement to support, yeah. it's tricky. Of course, that we won't give up. There are ways to create cooperatives or whatever, you know, but... I think that we need to work individually at the government level and international. The Amazon is important not just for Brazil. It matters for the entire world. It has a huge impact on climate change and, and everything. So we do need a higher engagement from everyone to protect the, the Amazon. This episode was produced by Sucker Punch Productions and Script to Screen Media.